Hello, I'm Hugh Ronzani, and welcome to Brandenburg One. You're listening to the first episode of Baroque Now, exploring the music, people, and instruments that you may be discovering for the first time through our new digital stage, Brandenburg One. Today, I'll be joined by the inimitable Paul Dyer, artistic director and co-founder of the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Paul, it's a pleasure to have you with me today. Thanks, you. Now, why Bach? Why not Handel or the Vivaldi series? Well, I really wanted to start with Bach and perhaps later on with various other Baroque composers. But Bach wrote in many forms for many instruments and voices. As a starting point, I wanted to present a series with solo instruments. Bach wrote for the keyboard, the violin, the cello, the flute and other instruments in a solo capacity, just one instrument. The music is really strong, it's profound, and it's perfect as a starting point for this online series. So a lot of people toy with the word genius, and Bach obviously falls in that category. He gets called a genius by everyone and their mother. For you, Paul, as a soloist, uh, what do you think about that? Well, to call Bach a genius is really an understatement, Hugh. Wow. His music is virtuosic. As you know, it's fiercely technical. But it also speaks directly to the soul of the musician and the listener like no other composer does. Mm. His music is really on another plane. (laughs) So how does Bach manage to do that, take us to that other plane? With Bach, we have a composer who was supremely gifted in the development and deployment of ideas, often taking a small fragment of a musical idea and then perhaps adding a phrase or two. Hmm. Uh, He ingeniously weaves a single idea into an amazing, expansive tapestry of sound that can simultaneously touch the the body and the mind and really the soul, I think. Johann Sebastian Bach, he was born on March the 21st in 1685 in Eisenacht and he died on the 28th of July in 1750 in another city in Germany, in Leipzig. So that made him obviously about 65 when he, when he died. Exactly. He was the most celebrated member of a, a very large family of North German musicians. Although he was admired by his contemporaries, his music contemporaries, that is, primarily as an outstanding harpsichordist, organist, an expert on organ building, Bach is now pretty well regarded as one of the greatest composers of all time. Well, indeed. And uh, from a modern perspective, of course, I came across Bach myself as a composer first, rather than the knowledge about his um, organ building or, you know, his, his reputation as an organist. So uh, maybe early on, what about his childhood? Well, at age 10, both his parents were dead. He was looked after by his oh, eldest brother, Johann Christoph. Christoph had been a pupil of the influential composer of the day known as Pachelbel, that uh, everyone knows, of course, for the canon. Yes, indeed. And he apparently gave Johann Sebastian his first formal keyboard lessons. Bach again did really well at school, and in 1700, his voice secured him a place in the select choir of a poor boys' school in uh, Lüneburg. How did Bach's music career progress? When we look at his output now in the 21st century... Obviously, there were clear divisions between certain phases in his life, no? Well, by the age of 18, he started to make his way in life. Uh, He lived and worked in three main cities during his lifetime in Germany. Weimar, from about 1703, he was mainly working in Protestant churches and composed a massive amount of 
organ music during that period. Mm. This led to a, another city where he travelled to Curtin, and in uh, 1723, he was pretty well mostly engaged with writing what we call chamber music, so music for small ensembles of, of instruments. And the final period of his life was in the city of Leipzig. Now, it was the last really 27 years of his life, and he was very famous uh, as the cantor of St. Thomas's Church there. He was very, very active in his compositional role at that church. So at the picture that you've just given me is obviously Bach and his uh, musical life being centered around a lot of uh, organ music, church music, but essentially regular activity where every week maybe he was having to compose music for a practical purpose. Indeed, when he gets to Leipzig, he signs a very elaborate contract with the town council and he falls foul of the regulations in so many different ways that he finds himself in battles either with the clergy or with the town council or with the headmaster of the school. Um, and this really wears him down throughout this period. Mm. He describes in one of the few private letters that we have how his life uh, is full of what he said, vexation and hindrance, and how the people here in Leipzig are little interested in music and have a curious disposition. So clearly a man with a certain reputation, but also a certain idea of what his worth is. Oh, sure. So there's a sense that he was always an outsider. In these three cities in Germany that he lived during his lifetime, Weimar, Curtin and Leipzig, he was really up against something um, that he's incorrigible to some Extent. In terms of Bach and his personality, clearly here we have a man who's aware of his genius and, and has a certain idea of his own worth, and he's fighting for what he thinks uh, should be the right thing to do. Um, but maybe you could elaborate on that. What sort of personality do we think Bach sort of had? Yeah, as you said, I think that's one side of Bach's personality. Maybe it was his creative side, actually, because it, well, in his embattled state, fired him up to write the amazing, incredible music that he did. On the other hand, there's a totally different side to Bach, that convivial family man who welcomed all visiting musicians in his city or in his town, wherever he was, who took infinite pains to look after the musical education and the career steps of his children. Well, much as he'd received from his own brother. Uh, effectively, without parents, I'm sure his elder siblings had to step up in, in, in that way because otherwise, how would they have survived? Yeah, of course, Bach had normal attributes as well. He was, you know, normal faults and failings, which make him very approachable. Uh, but he had that capacity to hear music and then deliver it in terms of improvisation and then how he notated it. And how did he die, Paul? Well, it was very sad. He, he died like a few other composers during this period after eye surgery in about 1750. As you mentioned before, he was 65. For those that knew Bach and could maybe talk to his personality, what sort of man and what sort of personality do we discover? Well, we're very lucky to have a lot of scholarly research into um, not only the original paintings that authenticate Bach, but also descriptions of the man himself. So from what I know, he was a friendly, lively, kind of cheerful chap. But also there was this other side to him, which was cantankerous, um, I suppose what you would say remote, but present. Uh, he was full of humour, uh, 
but deeply serious. So you've got these kind of two sides to, to his personality. Much like you were saying before with the family man as opposed to the uh, you know genius professional who battling. was uh, yeah, battling away. Exactly. So his battling nature caused grief to him during his lifetime. There was a, there was a very famous acknowledgement that the Duke of Weimar imprisoned him for cheekiness and kind of subversive behaviour. Uh, <laughs> he really had anger management issues. <laughs> and, and yet he had Clearly. this capacity for tenderness at the same time. Mm. He was married uh, to two wonderful women and had many children. The famous conductor, uh, Sir John Elliot Gardner, said in, in his book, he had normal flaws and failings which make him very approachable. But he had this unfathomably brilliant mind and a capacity to hear music and then deliver it that is beyond the capacity of pretty well any musician before or since. Well, that's quite a uh, compliment, really, from yeah, a great but man the, like Yeah, there was the other Gardner. side to him as well, of course, which was he loved beer and he loved coffee. Uh, this was well notated. Um, and, of course, he wrote a wonderful cantata, which is very, very famous. We performed it on stage a few years back called The Coffee Cantata. Yes, indeed, The Coffee Cantata. What a fabulous work. I came across a wonderful recording featuring the great Canadian soprano Susie Leblanc online just the other day. And then later, while I was looking through our archives, her name popped up as part of the Baroque Passions program back in 2000. Now, she wasn't performing the coffee cantata, but rather one of Bach's other secular cantatas known as the wedding cantata, BWV 202. Have a listen to her glorious voice in the opening aria from the wedding cantata.
And that, of course, was a live recording by ABC Classics at the City Recital Hall, featuring Canadian soprano Susie Leblanc, Paul Dyer, and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. So, Paul, what would a day in the life of J.S. Bach during his time in Leipzig, especially with his work as the cantor for St. Thomas's Church, have been like? Interesting as a 21st century person to look back and think, you know, without technology, with all the the daily uh, things that we have in our life, 300 or 400 years ago, how different that might be. So Bach was responsible not just simply for writing the music, but also he was a schoolmaster for disciplining and for being a kind of house father to a lot of boarding school choristers who were in his charge and who had their dormitories actually right up close to his dwellings, his private living quarters in the Thomas uh, School in Leipzig. Oh, I didn't know that. So how Buck had any time for a private life, God really, God only knows. (laughs) But he would have to have taken prayers. He would have had to take an early lessons in tutoring young students. He would have to go into daily rehearsals and daily classes, and then he would get to his desk and start composing the cantata for that week, which was going to last up to 35 minutes. That's a lot of writing, depending on the occasion. And he did it right throughout his life, right to the very end. And on that family life, obviously that's a busy man with lots of things going on, lots of commitments to various groups. Um, What was he, he like as a family man? Well, he appears to have been a really good husband and obviously a good father. Uh, Indeed, he was the father of 20 children, only 10 of whom survived uh, to maturity. That was a different time. Yeah. He had two wives in his lifetime. Uh, Maria Barbara was his first wife and Mm. and very loved. Tragically, uh, she died when he was uh, taking baths uh, with, I can't remember, I think it was a count or uh, a dignitary of the city. And he came back two months later only tragically to... Um, find out that his wife had passed away and she'd been buried. That must have been absolutely tragic for him. His second wife, however, Anna Magdalena, she was a very young woman when uh, he married her. And coincidentally, she was a magnificent uh, singer to all accounts. Now, Paul, I'd love to go back to the Bach series and the performance that you have actually recorded for us already and the choice of repertoire that you came up with. Now, in front of me, I've got the two pieces of Bach's keyboard music that you played. It was firstly the prelude in C major from the well-tempered clavier and then the French suite number four in E flat major. Out of all of Bach's immense repertoire, why these two pieces? It was a very hard choice. So I gathered all the music up uh, from my studio and I put it in the car and I thought I'll take it home one night and I'll just kind of ransack all of this extraordinary music of this composer, the solo material for the harpsichord. And you can imagine my backseat of the car at the moment has, it's littered with books of, of Bach material of these compositions. Every time I break everything falls on the floor and I had to gather it all up together again. It made me realise how prolific Johann Sebastian Bach was for the keyboard and in particular the the harpsichord. But as an opener, I thought uh, it would be beautiful to present the first prelude of what was a cycle of 48 pieces that he grouped together, known as, as you mentioned, Das Weltempert Klavier. (laughs) 
Mm. The second piece comes from a cycle called French Suites. Uh, I decided to play number four in E flat, and it was the first movement of that, the Allemande. And I, I do know that collection of suites. Uh, indeed, I think the title French Suites came later that Bach didn't actually call it by that name. But in style, it's stylistically uh, French. And I know that in the collection, we have six different keys that Bach uses, one for each suite. Some are major, some are minor, and those who are familiar with this idea of major and minor uh, would know that obviously major keys tend to exploit a more joyful mood, and, and minor keys can be on the more somber side, maybe a bit more subdued or soulful sometimes. You chose the suite number four in E-flat major. Does that key have any special meaning? It certainly does, Hugh. First of all, I have this wonderful story of when I lived in The Hague in, in Holland. I was attending the Royal Conservatory there um, as, a, as a postgraduate student, one of um, five in this particular year chosen from around the world. And we, I, I met a French harpsichordist who was a colleague of mine. We were both studying with the same teacher. And every day um, he introduced me to the, to the art of tea drinking. And he was also horrified that I would put milk in my tea and, and would sniff up and say, mm, English tradition. <laughs> um, but during our course of whenever we could, we practiced like uh, furiously in the morning. And then at about three o'clock in the afternoon, when we could, we'd have this tea session. I'd go over to his his apartment in De Peuponchestrat and um, go up to the first floor and we'd sit down and talk about meaningful musical things. And I remember Thierry... Uh, saying to me that he was he was studying a, a piece of Bach that he was about to play that following week, and it was in the key of E flat. And I said to him, "Does that has a have a special meaning for you?" And he said, "It sure does." And he said, "Awkwardness." And I said, <laughs> "What?" Uh, he said, "It's so awkward on the keyboard." So when I think of the two pieces that I've chosen, the first prelude you mentioned in C major, it's very easy on the fingers. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't disconnect your fingers in any it kind of way. Well it sits well. Sits well. This one, uh, the E flat, is awkward, and and he was completely right in that. But during this time, specifically um, about the the meaningfulness of of keys, Bach had a very strong knowledge of the ancient doctrine of affections. Now, this of course goes way back to ancient Greek and Roman times. Uh, it was a style of oration and oratory during that time with a very strong plan a very strong delivery uh, a strong character and a message as well as the execution it was an art that was performed in very large forums in ancient greece and rome and it was as i said it was known as the doctrine of affections and the way this was planned had a very very strong meaning for the emotion so how does that relate to key signatures? Well, good question. Specifically in the 18th century, for example, composers understood that there was an underlying affect or emotion that they wanted to deliver with the piece. For example, E-flat major, uh, the French suite that I'm going to play, the Allemande, um, that was the key of love, or the key of devotion, um, and indeed, specifically to Bach, it was an intimate conversation with God. 
a, a far thing removed from the awkwardness Thierry uh, exactly, described. <laughs> exactly right. This beautiful sense of love and devotion. Often uh, it, ha- it could also be associated with pastoral, uh, mm. the idea of pastoralness, the mm. shepherd in the field. Um, the, as opposed to C major, the, the opening piece that I played of the prelude, which is very, very pure. Its character is innocence and simplicity and beautiful naivety. So what is special, uh, moving on to the, the prelude, Paul, what is special about this prelude in particular? I know you said it's the first piece of a collection of 48 pieces, but, you know, is there anything else you'd like to say about it? Yes, you personally... I was lucky enough to study from a very young age with a, a revolutionary person. She was way past her time. Uh, she was looking at futuristic music, but also ancient music. And she introduced, as a young pianist, she introduced me to the harpsichord and the spinet and the clavichord and the forte piano, ancient keyboard instruments. And one of the very first uh, examinations I did, I played the, the prelude in C major. And I remember uh, she was very interested in having all her students have a particular new edition. And this was the musicology coming out in, in her, which wasn't really respected that much by other performers and teachers around the time. And it was an, what we call an urtext edition. It was going back to look at the, whilst it might be in modern notation, uh, modern 21st century notation, it was going back to the, the purity of the of what the composer wrote without any frills and bits and pieces added to it like uh, dynamic markings mm. or editorial markings by a, an editor. So she got me to play this C major prelude and on top of it I can even see the writing in her scribble. She wrote in very large letters, no colour whatsoever, play like clever chord and I had no idea what that was and I said why have you written first of all what is a clever chord and and um, (laughs) logical question (laughs) yeah she introduced me as I said to these these ancient keyboard instruments the clever chord of course is full of color it is an instrument works working on a tangent system which is able to create vibrato through its mechanism of, of the string and the placement of the finger but the harpsichord essentially has no dynamic change between one note to the next because it's a plucked instrument um I going back to the piece of music and why you asked why the prelude in C major, this piece that I performed for this examination shocked the examiner. I remember that my report card came back. I was probably thirteen or fourteen uh, mm. when she wrote no color whatsoever in the clavichord because they weren't used to that kind of musicological inquest uh, during that time. So. The character for me it, um, of this prelude reminds me not so much as of those musicology things, but of the sense of drifting. I use the word drifting. Mm. It's a rhythmical repetition of a pattern, uh, but at the same time, it's it's absolute genius. I love this piece so much. Well, for me personally, I've heard this piece much like almost everyone else many many times, and I can see what your teacher was getting at with the idea of C major purity, innocence simplicity. This is all interlinked with the idea that Bach was exploring, the temperament of the key of C major. And uh, in terms of your performance now, uh, I know I've had a sneak preview. There was a little improvisation that was performed after that prelude, Paul. Now, where did your inspiration for that come from? Well, when you 
play this particular piece of music, you kind of get into a zone. When I when I'm playing this, I play from memory. I'm not using the music. Uh, and Bach had a great Im- improvisation nature. He that was his gift. He really had an extraordinary gift of of um, performing something on the spot for the moment. But not only that, he had a curiosity with numbers, which I might go into with you at a later stage. Um, this was all to do with the alphabet, the German alphabet, and his curiosity with things much, his connection with, with God and connection with religion and the way and the, the reason why he composed the music that he did. Mm. Uh, it was very sincere and very uh, special. But he also had, within this gift of numbers, he had, when I was in the zone playing this piece, I suddenly heard those things I mentioned, drifting of rhythmic repetition. So I started to explore time and going through a time signature of two and four and three, and I decided to drift using patterns mm. and and numbers and I ended up with this performance. And in terms of what you're describing, I'm sure it'll come across to the audience. But for me personally, I've had similar experiences where it actually was at the con as well while I was a student. Uh, Judy Bailey, famous jazz pianist. Uh, a yes, wonderful Australian Oh, exactly. Outstanding musician. But she had all of the young composers and jazz musicians together in this strange uh, class where often just a word or a notion like uh, green or you know a concept Mm. the forest air breathing you know down your neck would be given to us as stimulus for performances and when you allow your mind to drift and you listen and you really work on listening to not only what you're producing your own instrument but then the other instruments around you these sorts of things we come back to them because we learnt those patterns as musicians and we can express that in a way that sometimes can be extremely profound and this particular C major prelude is perfect for that I find it a mystery, uh, even though it's it's very well set out on the page. When you look at the notation, it's very clear what Bach intended. But when you start to play it, or when you start to listen to it as a listener, that's when you go into this drift and this wonderful. It's like a dream state, mm. and that's why using his sense of numbers, he's using his sense of emotions through his uh, you know respect to the ancient. Romans and Greeks and his feeling of of naivety and purity that we've talked about, this is where it uh, really started to capture my performance. Exactly, and transported both you but also us because we can share that with you. Now, uh, maybe a a naive question unto itself, but Paul, for me, it's not obvious. Um, Perhaps you could answer this. Is it possible to learn how to play the harpsichord without ever playing a note of J.S. Bach's? I think it's absolutely impossible. <laughs> um, this is definitely his instrument, the harpsichord. The harpsichord is, is of course, a plucked instrument, uh, and Bach exploited it beautifully uh, in, in, in a way that, um, that no other can. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Paul. I know time is precious, as always, and, uh, and I really enjoyed hearing all about Bach. Thanks, you. The Brandenburg is proud of our long-standing relationship with principal partner Macquarie Group. Our partnership with Macquarie Group is built on a shared vision of infinite possibilities and a commitment to the very highest standards of excellence. The Brandenburg is also proud to be supported by APA Group, 
our presenting partner for the Bach series. Through our partnership with APA Group, we have the opportunity to connect Baroque music to audiences and communities throughout Australia.